Roundup apologies for not showing up last week. Turns out when Gareth's away, the podcast doesn't play. Back, I'm not planned at all. I'm Gareth Hanna, and with me, as always, are Jonathan Bradley. Hello, hi, Ari. And Adam McCandry. Hi, this week, I like this week we have a wee Ireland game to look back on. You might not have heard about it then. We have the real big game of the week to preview as Ulster visit the Scarlets. We'll have your listener questions and, of all, as always, the club roundup. First of all, then. A return to our former glory days of the Jacob Stockdale Rugby Roundup, and very deservedly so. What a performance that was. Ireland 16, New Zealand 9. It must have been absolutely magic to be there. And you're going to have to look at me here I rather than... Um, very strategically looking at you there. Rather than um, Adam, because if we want to know how the Continental Cup ice hockey is, then he's your man. Adam's lads. I was going to say, I'm really glad we're back. But now you started like this, and I'm really regretting coming in this afternoon. You do, so, you do have to explain yourself. I mean, like I wasn't at the match, like one of the greatest Irish rugby victories of all time, because I had already booked a holiday in Malta, so there's nothing I could do about it. But you, well, yeah, what, why, are you why are you not getting slagged as much because, as I am? Because I had a much better excuse. Because he went to Malta and you went to the Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I see. Right now, but okay, yeah, that's fair. All right, so. The, Belfast Giants were playing in the Continental Cup and I went to their game instead of going to the Ireland All Blacks game because I get paid more if I go to the ice hockey. Is that an acceptable answer? Well, it depends. I mean, how can you put a price on witnessing history? Because my bank balance is ridiculously low. That's how (laughs) I can put a price on that. It's almost like you shouldn't have went into journalism if that was one of your main (laughs) concerns. Very true. Touche. You should have become an acclaimed author instead. That surprisingly doesn't help the bank balance either. <laughs> well, so basically what we've discovered in this podcast so far is we're all broke and I missed out on one of the greatest sporting achievements of the Irish rugby team. Exactly. So Jonathan, explain to us what it was like to be there. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Just um, when you think about the amount of time and the amount of times that the All Blacks have been here, um, 113 years now of uh, trying to beat the All Blacks in Dublin and... To see it happen and just happen with such such an accomplished performance um, from Ireland, the likes of Peter O'Mahony was um, just a superhuman performance. Really, um, he was unbelievable. I think I'll remember how he played that day forever, and just what it means to Irish rugby. You could see what it meant to the people who were there to to witness that. As much as Chicago had been. Um, this great cathartic thing to finally beat the All Blacks. So much of it felt like a one-off. It being in Soldier mm-hmm. Field, Sam Whitelock and Brody Vitalik, um being missing. Then the fact that New Zealand won in Dublin two weeks later. So much of it felt isolated, and so much mm-hmm. of it felt different. Whereas this was just a traditional, if you like, mm-hmm. November international, the type that Ireland have um, so often every time previously failed to win and then if you especially with how the game ended with um, all those memories of um, 2013 coming to the fore when New Zealand were going through phase after phase after phase mm-hmm. um, beyond the 80th minute and <laughs> Ryan Crotty had already gone off by that stage but you know there was one big difference between in 2013 and 20, uh, uh, the weekend and it was Jacob Stockdale. Well, that's one of the big differences. Um, but in that last 
segment of the game where the All Blacks were coming forward and attacking. In 2013, the crowd were almost in a stunned silence as in fear that it was going to happen, and it did happen. But this time around, the entire Aviva Stadium were on their feet singing the Fields of Athen Rye. They were given it stacks from the stands, and the players almost fed off that. Uh, and they kept them out this time. And I think that there was just such a striking difference that there was almost a belief this time that Ireland could do it in the stands, as opposed to in 2013 where there was that fear that the All Blacks were inevitably going to score, and they did. I also think there was... Chicago, if, if Chicago hadn't happened, I don't think Ireland would have held on there. Um, and that, that that's a very sweeping generalisation because I'm not trying to take away anything from how Ireland played. I thought they did really well. But the fact that Ireland already had that experience of getting over the line, the f- that allowed them to hold on whenever it was so close this time around and take, no- take nothing away from anyone. Like That was a 23-man performance out there mm. and they stood up manfully. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. Like, um, just a, a wild scene. Not to continue to roll it in for you. Know, yeah, just, there, just keep going there. Um, I, I would like to point out, um, one of our colleagues, Alex Carey, showed me a video of the final minutes of the game and the explosion of noise at the very end whenever the ball was knocked on. And at that moment, I just knew I'd made a big mistake. <laughs> like, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, like, the fields being sung consistently up until... The final whistle and into the final whistle, um, just very different from the I suppose the the tenter hooks mm. of twenty thirteen. Um, Is that just people believing that Ireland are deserve well, deserve these sort like of like you can things? say that Ireland have um, since beaten the All Blacks in Chicago, but you also have to take into consideration what else has happened since then. A Grand Slam. Two other Six Nations mm-hmm. titles, back-to-back Six Nations titles for the first time since the 1940s. A first ever win in South African soil. A first series win against Australia since 1979. Um, only having lost one game this year. So 2013 was the beginning of the Joe Schmidt era in yeah. Irish rugby rather than... Sorry, Irish rugby with a capital R rather than Irish rugby because obviously Leinster before that. But I suppose now it's just making sure that that's not the peak of the Joe Schmidt era because I don't Mm -hmm. think, we'll find out soon enough, but I don't think any of us expect him to stay on beyond the World Cup at the minute. So it's just making sure that Saturday's not the high point and that they carry it on into the World Cup and break that last hoodie, which is the World Cup quarterfinal, which could be against New Zealand. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, well, be better talking, play them in the final. Like yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking about um, belief. Was the something that I found very interesting reading about after the game was Rory Best's quote about what Ireland did during the hacker, and they sort of took that single step forward. Like how significant? It was nicer reading back and thinking. Keepers wonder how significant that was. How significant is that? How significant is how a team reacts during the hacker, and to make a, a, a symbolic step like that, as Rory Best said. Does, does that do something internally to the players? You've seen throughout the years all the different responses to the hacker. You know, Willie John McBride uh, leading the team up to the to the halfway line as New Zealand did the hacker. Um, I, I think the, the hacker is one of those storied things. Anytime you go up against the All Blacks, you're obviously going to face it. And you can either let it affect you or you can 
sort of ignore it. <clears throat> Taking that step, I think, was just kind of Ireland's way of saying we're not going to let you intimidate us. And teams don't necessarily have to make a, a physical act- action to suggest that that's the case, but Ireland chose to. I think it's more just the resilience of this Ireland team. I think whenever you watch that hacker. They were getting, they were mentally preparing themselves. They were getting themselves ready and saying, "We're gonna go toe to toe with you, and we're gonna take you all the way." Because I, I don't think Ireland were intimidated by it at all. And I know in the past some players have said, "Just watching it, it, it makes you genuinely fear some of the guys that are uh, that are against you." And that that's the case. But I, I think there, there's nothing to fear from the hacker for for Ireland. Let's before we'll go on any longer without really getting into it, let's just talk about Jacob Stockdale. <laughs> <laughs> that try was just phenomenal. And especially given like three or four minutes earlier what had happened when he tried to kick and had was very lucky that uh, Ireland weren't punished in the strongest possible way for it. Yeah, because I mean, that's the thing really. Um, that was one of the more incredible things in the game to me, the fact that he still had the confidence to go for it and... Jacob Stockdale, we've yeah, seen. When you, I didn't watch the match live; like I watched it back. But even like having seen the way the first kick went, when you see him shaping up for the second, because like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it reminded me in a way. Even I knew what was going to happen. Yeah, I knew it was the try coming. I was still like, "Oh, see that." Bear like, in mind, he's kicking over Brody Vitalik as well, yeah. who is the second tallest man in the pitch. Yeah, Brody, he's not going to be like, kicking over Devin Toner. He's Brody, Brody Vitalik's six foot eight, so he couldn't get it over the six foot four of um, Kieran Reid. <laughs> so what went the next time for the six foot eight of Brody Vitalik? But it reminded me of the intercept um, against Wales in the Six mm-hmm. Nations, where it was one of those things where it's such a high risk, but also the high reward. So we've seen Jacob Stockdale um, do this and have the confidence in himself to back himself and do it. And he came out afterwards in um, on Saturday. Well, it was practically Sunday, but um, in the mix zone afterwards. Um, and talked That's the word to 11 o'clock and starts crying about it. Like, ridiculous. Just be glad you were there. <laughs> I wrote exactly. 11 pieces on that game. <laughs> And every one of them a joy, I would imagine. Every one of them a gem. They were all just <laughs> absolute bangers. Um, Self-praise is no recommended. <laughs> don't I know it. <laughs> imagine how good that book must be. <laughs> I'll take it a little step further because you're talking about how the confidence he had to kick it over oh, after yeah. he tried the one earlier, um, which, which I completely agree with. But I'm going to take it back even the fact that he didn't have the greatest game against Italy. He didn't have the greatest game against Argentina. I, I don't think anybody had the greatest game against Argentina, to be honest. But even the fact to keep backing yourself, to keep mm-hmm. going for things like that, even going for the first one after being relatively quiet in the previous two games, he's trying things. He's always looking for that X-factor play. And the first one doesn't come off. It doesn't matter. He backs himself. He has the confidence in his own ability to go for it again. And he pulls off that Hail Mary play. It's a great move from start to finish. I, th- I think it is pre-planned. You know, I, d- I, don't, yeah, I, don't think, I don't think the plan is for them to try and break down the left without kicking. I think the plan is for him to kick in behind after switching mm-hmm. back from the line out. But ju- just the confidence in your own ability to do it 
especially having uh, seen it not come off a few minutes earlier, is incredible. It's, it's that kind of mental ability that sets uh, one player out from another. And I think Stockdale has proven on many occasions, even whenever he was breaking through at Ulster, that he has that ability to back himself, even whenever the play looks like it's not on. Yeah, like it's 100%. It's a pre-planned move. like, And you see it an awful lot. Um especially in Mitre 10 rugby and Joe Schmidt actually made a joke sort of about um, watching Mitre 10 rugby um, to get his ideas and being thankful that you can't put uh, patents on backline moves but you see the way that it works and they um, come in through Sexton so Sexton then ends up getting um, nailed essentially late <laughs> for his trouble when he then passes the ball back into Aki but it switches the point of attack so much that Everyone is going to the right, and the backs are lined out in the right, obviously, because all the forwards have been involved in the line out. And then all of a sudden, you have Jacob Stockdale looking up, and the men in front of him are Sam Whitelock, Brody Vitalik, and Kieran Reid, who've fallen down. So, Rory Bass is actually outside Jacob Stockdale, but that's what brings um, Smith in, which leaves the space in behind. So, it works so, so well. Um, as a move because it's I think in New Zealand they call it the mouse trap where you um, have you sw- run a switch play which Ireland do quite a lot this isn't a new thing Ireland running switch plays but you run the switch play straight off the back of a set piece and you end up with the player that you have designed in this case Jacob Stockdale attacking a bunch of forwards who are all grouped together from um, just as a residual effect of the set piece but we saw something similar in Twickenham for the Grand Slam game. Uh, you know, Joe Schmidt just pulls out these moves at what well, what we all think is the biggest times. And then you speak to him after and he's like, yeah, well, we tried that one like three years ago and it didn't work. Yeah. But we've worked on it a little bit now and brought it out for this game. It's um, It was just fascinating for me to hear him talk about that kind of thing and how he... Um, puts these things into action how you um, put them in storage for two or three years <laughs> yeah. how sometimes it, that one for example there was a great Murray Kinsella piece about how three years ago they'd run the same play for Tommy Bow, but it just hadn't worked right. and um, then you don't see it for three years it was yeah. the same with the CJ Standard try and twerking him for the Grand Slam that was a move that hadn't worked the first time mm-hmm. and then they just brought back out again I'm just imagining Joe Schmidt has a big Cabinet, cabinet file with uh, loads of different <laughs> plays and he's just like which one haven't I used in a while yeah, here's one from three it. years ago we'll go with that one it's one of them we filofax jobbies that you oh, used yeah, to yeah. see and imagine if you could patent moves whoever pulled off the first switch play would have made a killing if you could patent moves like what, what would you patent um, that beard uh, it, would, it would have to be that beard <laughs> yeah while we're on Jacob we'll just throw in <laughs> if I say while we're on beards <laughs> yeah, absolutely I'm trying to get away from that uh, we'll throw in a listener question uh, while we're here. Um, Peter McNair asks, Stockdale is the, well, he says, Stockdale is new Chris Ash and he can do very little wrong in attack, nearly always gets the bounce and is mostly in the right place at the right time. He does always get the right bounce. That's, that's fascinating. He doesn't, he doesn't do the Ash bash, that. which already Well, he actually ahead. did do that against, um, was it the Connaught game with the Charles Pietai? 
that try he definitely did a de well sorry he didn't have the ball in one hand I don't think but he definitely did the big dive because that was the back page of all the papers the next day because it was that's right <laughs> a really good picture I believe from our esteemed previous guest um, John Dixon had the picture of him going over the line with the ball but anyway he doesn't actually always the new Michael Larry I know <laughs> we're, we're always giving him the mention um. You've, you've you were going to make a point and I've forgotten what it was. <laughs> well, about um, always getting the right bounds. Yeah, he actually doesn't get the right bounds in that try um, on Saturday, if you look at it, and that's what but makes it all do, the more impressive because he actually has to been It could have been, yes. But he actually has to readjust his body when moving at that yeah. speed to get the ball when the ball bounces inside, which was another thing that didn't get spoken about as much for that try because there was so much else going on. Yeah. He's an absolute tank now, too, isn't he? We're really going off the subject of what the pedal's trying to ask you. He's an absolute yeah, tank. That's all like, the thing I took away from the weekend. You, you, it was actually before the Australia tour I met him. So that was the summer of 2017. So he'd been in the Ireland setup for a year. And I like it. I've obviously seen him a lot, but I was just standing beside him because I bumped into him randomly. I was just standing beside him looking up and I'm being like, you've got absolutely massive recently big time um, anyway Petter back to your question now she says Stockdale can't defend for toffee and I would say the difference if you're going we will, we will get on to asking this question at some stage. <laughs> no if you're going to sorry I was there answering. is more to this question let me ask it here because if we don't ask it now we never will he can't defend for toffee but does that matter until he makes several mistakes in consecutive games if he couldn't defend at all, then Joshua wouldn't pick him. Yeah. Um, that, that is 100%. a very key point. What, For, what do you see from his game defensively? I think he's still learning. He's done an awful lot of work with Andy Farrell. Jared Payne has also done work with Andy Farrell. So he's now, whereas he maybe wasn't when he first came through, getting a consistency in coaching. There's obviously differences to what Ulster are doing and Ireland are doing, but it's not the completely two different game plans that it used to be. But the only thing that I would say when comparing Chris Ashton and um, Jacob Stockdale, and for all Chris Ashton's flaws, um, Chris Ashton is not a bad thing to be. Like He's back in the England team the season that he had last year at the... Um, Toulon, he's made a boatload of money. You know, there's worse things to be in your career than Chris Ashton, aside from the whole Ash Splash business. Chris Ashton is also 31. Mm-hmm. Jacob Stockdale's 22. Like, we talk about all these young players that are making their impact at Ulster, getting the first handful of appearances at Pro 14 level and how impressed everybody is with them. Jacob Stockdale's the same age as half of these people. <laughs> you know, we... We can lose sight of the fact with everything that Jacob Stockdale's done that he is 22 years old. So there are holes in his game. They are getting better and they're going to improve more. Very few players are great defensively at 22 because it's very hard. For instance, at school level, you could see Jacob Stockdale's attacking game. But it wasn't like he could learn at school's level how to defend Rico Ione because it wasn't like he was ever going to play Rico Ione <laughs> in the school's cup. It just wasn't going to happen. I know they're similar age anyway. But You've also got to bear in mind he played centre during school's level as well. So he's yeah. learning how to defend as a centre as opposed to a mm. winger. Yeah, so yeah, 100%. Um, 
Um, I think it's just because of everything that Jacob Stockton has done and all the accolades that he gets, it's very easy to overlook the fact that he's a work in progress in the same way yeah. that anybody at 22 is a work in progress. Yeah. And whenever, it, whenever it boils down... Apart from Adam, of course. <laughs> Thanks. Finished, <laughs> finished article. <laughs> whenever his offensive cap- capabilities are so good, it certainly makes the defensive cap- capabilities uh, not matter so much. I mean, you get... You can excuse one slip tackle if it means he makes two clean, two clean breaks that lead to tries. Yeah. But like with the defense, I think it is obviously getting better. Absolutely. And like people, and it's not like it was, or it's not like it's been a gigantic problem because, as we no. say, if it was, he wouldn't be being picked. Mm-hmm. People go back to that Leinster game in the RDS. You know, if you're talking about that being the disaster where, you know, he makes those couple of mistakes in the same game, how long ago was that? That was a year. Yeah, that's a that's almost a year ago. And bear in mind he played fullback that day as well, which yeah. again is not his regular position, yeah. particularly for Ireland. And he has another year of progression to go before the World Cup, which is exactly. more good news for for Ireland. Uh, of course, after a game such as that, we have to get our latest update on where Jacob Stockdale ranks in Ireland's all-time try-scoring list. Well, the drought is over, fellas. <laughs> yeah, four four tests in a row there without a try. I thought he was finished. So I thought he was done. Quite frankly, the, really. the tweets had to be put in mothballs. But, <laughs> but no, we are back. There are 15 men in history who have scored more test tries for Ireland than Jacob Stockdale. He has 14 caps. Fantastic. 14 uh, caps and 12 tries, is that right? Yeah. 12. 14 caps, 12 tries. It's not Same it's amount not. of tries as Keith Crossan now. Fantastic. And bear in mind that Stockdale probably has about 14 more years left in the Ireland setup to keep exactly. scoring tries. Exactly. Well, hopefully we'll have another update on that next week. Wow, well, I wouldn't say he's going to play this week now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, probably get himself a wee break. So it'll be the Six Nations. That's a shame. Gareth, your, your face dropped there. I, know, it just, it was I was really sad. excited to see who he was going to have drawn alongside this time next week. And if it's not next week, it's going to be ages away. Well, see, he's actually level with Conor Murray. And I think just ahead of Rob Carney now. So there is, or maybe level with Rob Carney. So there is a chance that he may fall back at uh, some stage okay. as well. I, I so point. hope they have a scoreboard up in Carton House where they're like updating <laughs> exactly. it as they go with each try. <laughs> yeah. Just like we like sticky things on a whiteboard. All right, lads. Most, be great. most, like most the, tries the by the end of the ladders they used to get with shoot, where you're just moving them up and down. <laughs> most tries by the end of the season wins a cream egg. It'd <laughs> <laughs> be well out of date by the end of the season. <laughs> well, they're only gonna come in like what March time, so the Six Nations will be. Um, oh yeah, okay. So I suppose that's acceptable then. Fair play. <laughs> fair play. Um, in terms of the actual game itself, like. This particularly in the first half, Ireland were so dominant, weren't they? Like, like they could have scored a try. They, were they should have scored a try. Concerningly like dominant. Concerningly dominant. <laughs> because I don't think I've ever heard you of don't being <laughs> concerningly dominant. Before. You do not want for New Zealand. No, you don't want to be that dominant, and then the score be nine six. Yeah. At half time, because that is something that we see frequently that Ireland. Ireland's reputation in the past would have been that they can stick with anybody for 40 minutes or 60 minutes, but then mm-hmm. the better teams are going to pull away. And that's... But they weren't just sticking with New Zealand, like they were dominating them, and well, arguably, possibly, possession. should have been ahead 
thinking of that Kearney try that was disallowed that did, looked a bit sketchy, but maybe did, that's with great Did you see on. Johnny Sexton's face whenever Rory Best opted to kick for goal with that last penalty of the first half? He was raging. He <laughs> wanted them to go into the corner. Because he fit, I, I think Sexton thought that the forwards could get a try out of that, mm-hmm. and that would have more accurately reflected Ireland's mm-hmm. dominance in but the first see, half. I mean, they'd kept going to the corner and kept not being able to get over. New Zealand kept giving away penalties. And it's amazing there was no yellow card. That's, that's, not, that's, that's amazing because it was the All Blacks. <laughs> oh, so you're one of those who attributes... <laughs> it would, the, it would have been amazing if it was anybody else. So you, you attribute to the belief that the All Blacks don't get yellow cards because they're the All Blacks? Well, it was funny because you, like, you get the ref mics um, in the Aviva Stadium, so you're able to hear... I don't know whether you could hear it on TV or not. Um, everything going on between Wayne Barnes and Roy Best. So after the first penalty that New Zealand give away in the 22, Roy Best goes over to Wayne Barnes and says, you know, Wayne, they would always rather we scored three than five when we're down here. And Wayne Barnes says, yep, 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 yep. And then I think he had three or four more instances of penalties. Some of them, actually more penalties than that, if you think about it, because some of them were in the same instance. Like you had the longest advantage that has ever been because mm. three penalties were given away in the same stretch and it just kept going and kept going. Um, Which is strange because I thought World Rugby brought in a new initiative that if you gave away another penalty within an advantage, it was automatically a yellow card to try and disincentivize teams from just cynically giving away penalties mm-hmm. to end advantages. See, I think William Barnes is, um, for me, he's actually now the best referee in the world I, think I agree I think he's really really good um, but I do think that you could have seen um, seen a card in that instance um, Sam Whitelock mm-hmm. was on the ground yeah. and just sort of flicked his wrist out at um, the pass while he was sat on the ground like that was you know offside it was a yeah. knock on it was um, obviously intentional things like that you know and I think there could have been complaints if after the amount of penalties that had gone before, somebody like that had a drawn a yellow card. Mm. But the other thing was, so many of them um, were for various things. You know, you had the scrum penalties because, I mean, Tag Furlong probably had a quieter game around the park than we sometimes see from him, and that's why I think people aren't talking about him. But he dominated the scrums. Um, really, just really, really impressive in that area because. Obviously, Joe Moody was out, but there's so much depth there for New Zealand that I I didn't expect to see Ireland's scrum as superior as it was. One of the things that impressed me most was the fact that, sure, the All Blacks weren't as great as they usually are. There were a lot of un, um, uh, unforced errors, and their penalty count was horrendous in that first half. But in terms of how the game was structured, it was a typical All Blacks performance in that they were okay for the first half and then they got better as the second half went on and then they really stepped up the gears in that last 20 minutes. They really put on that that big show that they always do whenever they play the lesser nations. It's that time where they start running in tries for fun. Whenever they play the top tier nations, it's whenever they bring that big comeback that they always seem to have. Um, and it was no different in this test and yet Ireland scrambled for their lives, defended for their lives and held them out until the bitter end I was really impressed with the fact that 
Ireland could have let their their momentum drop and they could have let their intensity drop and all of a sudden the All Blacks could have tied that mm-hmm. and you would have then backed them to go on and win it as opposed to Ireland. Uh, but uh, of all that was the uh, Johnny Sexton thing where he bundled the New Zealand yeah, yeah. and Jacob oh, Stockdale yeah. the touch and then went mad as if he just scored a half against oh, Brazil. Right. It was like, See, it was like you, had, you had the early turnover, so the game starts with New Zealand going through the phases and then you have Stander and Josh van der Flair um, winning the turnover and CJ Stander turns around and pumps the fist and is going nuts and then you have yeah. as you say Saxon on Ben Smith and it kind of bookended it but that showed you like the level of intensity and what the players were drawing from the crowd and the crowd drawing mm-hmm. from the players and just it obviously wasn't a normal test match to Ireland it obviously meant yeah. more you could see that but just on Adam's point like, the impressive thing about that is it is the time when you normally expect New Zealand to run in two or three tries like um, we've seen it as recently as the rugby championship against South Africa coming back with um, three tries in the last 20 minutes to win the game Ireland did that without Rory Best without Peter O'Mahony without Johnny Sexton and without Conor Murray the best part of that test was Peter O'Mahony jumping up to celebrate at the end forgetting he was injured <laughs> and so immediately uh, having to sit down in pain because he <laughs> jumped up too quickly yeah that's top uh, t- top gift work by whoever put that together I know. but <laughs> you, you were talking about the intensity there Johnny that's one thing that is sort of a negative for me from an Irish perspective and I, I hate to put a negative on this because it is such a great win but, you but look, you're going to <laughs> I'm going to you look at how Ireland reacted to that win. You look at CJ Stander fist pumping. You look at uh, Johnny Sexton roaring to the crowd when he bundles someone into touch. When have you ever seen that from the All Blacks in any test? When have you ever seen them getting that pumped up during a test match? For them, it's so cool, so calm. It's just this is what they do every week. This is how they go into every test match. They don't get so pumped up over one game if they were to beat Ireland <laughs> it's, a different, it's a different thing because Ireland are never going to be New Zealand and as much as New Zealand and Steve Hansen and Nigel or um, Dan Coles are putting it on to Ireland in a way and saying well we'll see how they deal with having the target on their back and we'll see how they deal with being the number one team in the world people are never going to approach a test against Ireland the way that they approach no a test against mm. New Zealand Ireland, Ireland could win the World Cup and people wouldn't approach a test yeah. because it just made, it's the same as like Man United in the 90s everybody raises their game to play the All Blacks and that's never going to be the case with Ireland so like I wouldn't you got to enjoy but, life sometimes Adam you know I I'm not saying don't enjoy beating the All Blacks I'm just saying I think Ireland got far too excited over one win over the All Blacks like there's a when it's your only one jeepers oh you can get excited surely it's not one win over the All Blacks it's the win over the All Blacks yeah. in Dublin I, yeah I don't know I don't think the All Blacks are going to be overly sort of upset about it either oh, I, I mean, think they might no, I think they might they, be yeah, but if they are they then it's be. a case of the way to ensure that a team doesn't celebrate when beating you is to not let them beat you like we had this conversation in, is a, that, in is a that different way, it's going to fire New Zealand up if they're demoted at the World Cup. Well, it, I, I, that's, that's a worry for me. Yes, I, I think New Zealand are going to be really fired up the next time they play Ireland, but I don't think they're going to be fired up to the extent that Ireland were in that every tackle was roared on with intensity, every hit into touch was cheered on by by the players to the crowd. I I just think teams give the All Blacks far too much reverence and far too much fear. They're still 
there's still, you know, a group of 23 humans who are good at rugby, but they are beatable. Well, they're not good at rugby. They're good enough at rugby okay. to win the World Cup <laughs> twice in a row. But, like, Gareth, yes, it's, okay. it's a really good question because it was interesting that James Lowe did media for Leinster today. Um, obviously, somebody who has a little bit of experience with Irish rugby, but far more experience of New Zealand rugby. Uh-huh. And he said that, in a way, he thinks this defeat could almost be good for New Zealand, coming as it does, yeah. or coming when it does. And yeah. it's a wake-up call, yeah. and he sort of makes the point that the next, if they do play Ireland at the World Cup, they're not going to be lacking motivation. And like if, you know, you talk about the reaction to it, New Zealand haven't lost back-to-back games since 2011. So no team in the world has ever been better at reacting to defeats, and it is because they take it so hard. Like, if you read... Richie McCaw's autobiography like it's an exaggeration but he'll just be like and then I was having my breakfast and then I started to think about that World Cup defeat to France (laughs) and then I was walking down the street and then I started to think about that World Cup defeat to France like he goes on about it all the time everything always comes back Mm. to that um, quarterfinal defeat to France in when year was that? 2007? 2007. Yeah, 2007. And he really sets that up as sort of the driving factor mm. for everything that New Zealand did um, after that under yeah. Graham Henry and then under Steve Hansen. They were just so aggrieved by the idea of losing this one match at the World Cup to France. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's very quickly, before we move on, um, because I think it would be remiss of us not to talk about Andy Farrell, who uh, helped Ulster out a little bit over the summer, so there's our Ulster link. Um, his, if he was a nation, he'd probably be the world number one. Four wins over New Zealand <laughs> in six years. It's ridiculous. Like, how, how has this guy got New Zealand's number? Well, it was funny because like he was interviewed during the week and obviously made the point that you know I've still lost to them far more times than... I beat them. That's just true for everybody. And that is true. And especially, you know, that um, that England game, we're getting further and further away from that now, even though people still talk about it as if it's recent because it was the last time that England beat them, 2012. You know, so we're six years away from Six years detached from that now. Um, but when you talk about holding the All Blacks without a try, because, like, we're sat... Um, at the end of the game, typing away and everyone trying to get the reports away for and stuff. And somebody said, when was the last time the All Blacks were held trialless? And sort of paused for five seconds and was like, it was only last summer. <laughs> but it, it was Andy Farrell again. And in certainly against the Northern Hemisphere team rather than the Southern Hemisphere teams, he um, played them so often. Um, I think it was 95 yeah, the last France time. 95. Yeah, the last time they were held trialless. And to hold them to single digits as well. Um, so yeah I think he's he's reticent about this uh, um, idea of him as an all black slayer but um, <laughs> it's hard to argue with the record <laughs> big like is time. it big time well let's move on a little bit oh no we won't. we'll hear from Dan McFarland first because he was speaking to the press earlier this week and had um, a little bit to say about the role his boys his Ulster boys played in the victory I think um I think there's a lot of pride. I think um, 
you know we're 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 all part of um, Irish rugby. Um, we know that. Um, you know, here in Ulster, we have a um, a stated aim of getting as as many of our, our young players um, representing Ireland as as we possibly can. Um, so when we see uh, um, one of our own, or as at the weekend, several of our own playing in a game like that, is uh, there's a huge amount of pride. Um, so I think it's uh, there's a you know there's there's the, 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 there's also a sense of um, I think of, of the standards that uh, that we're aiming for as well and and a part of you know we're um, you know we uh, um, we we have to uh, um, make sure that we maintain those high standards so that the uh, um, um, the guys when they come back uh, here uh, are, are also feeling as if they're they're being pushed. Um, and we're pushing those young fellas to reach the standards that the the the, the, the island team reach. All, all of these guys are ambitious young men, um, and and that's why I love being a part of it. Um, you know, there there are hopes and dreams in all of them. So um, that uh, that that desperation to get to that level, that uh, um, the knowledge of the amount of work that they have to put in um, to get there, and and the willingness to do that is is a fantastic thing to be a part of. On to Ulster then. Uh, <laughs> right. Like, like whenever we start recording there, I was like, right, we're on Dulster now. And you both literally went, oh. it's just <laughs> it's like, um, it's no offence, Dulster. Oh, abso- after that game, you want the World Cup happening right exactly. now. It's like, it's, yeah. a, it's absolutely no offence to Ulster, but it's like, yeah, if we could just say, if we could just have more test, uh, there is more test rugby. That's not to be disparaging <laughs> to the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we're about to be disparaging to the USA a little bit charging, later on. Charging up the world rankings, so there. Um. <laughs> well, before Ireland take on USA on Saturday, Ulster visits Scarlets on Friday evening. Now, Ulster haven't got any of their Ireland contingent released, so um, what sort of Ulster squad are we going to, to see here, other than a depleted one? It'll be very similar to the one that finished... Um Finished that first block of fixtures by beating Treviso, minus Stu McCluskey and Rob Herring, but plus Louis Ludic and possibly plus Darren Cave. That's right, our Louis back. Yep. Friend of the show. Friend, Friend of, of the, the podcast. Show. Unbelievable. And we would love to have him back at some point. <laughs> point quick. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be one of those typical November international squads where you're going to have a whole host of names that you've never heard of before on the opposition and you're going to have a load of young guys on the Ulster team so it, it's just a continuation of what we saw before Ulster went off in their break it's going to be loads of young guys being given their opportunity and being given the chance to impress and for me as I've said all along this season that's what this campaign is going to be about it's going to be about seeing what these young guys have to offer which is why I think this is a very exciting fixture you know you're going somewhere where Ulster haven't had a lot of success in the past and in all honesty they haven't had great results in general you know the Scarlets tend to run up a big number against Ulster in, in Clanathley whenever we play them in the Pro 14 because we usually play them at this time of the year so I think it's a chance for some of these guys to go out and say look give it give it a shot mm-hmm. just go out play with freedom uh, back yourselves a lot like Jacob Stockdale did at the weekend um, and just have, have a real go at them 
because I think then then you can get very similar styles of two teams who want to play a lot of broken field rugby, and I think that could make for a very exciting uh, offensive game. Was there anybody in the Uruguay game, because I'm just thinking we haven't discussed it on the podcast, that, say, sort of pushed for um, a place for a game such as this? Well, there certainly weren't any backs, given the weather. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> hammered down all day, all night. All, all I can remember is being wet. That's, that's <laughs> um, no, Tom O'Toole had a very good game. Adam McBurney had a very good game. We probably would have seen both those guys anyway. Um, the other person that impressed me anyway was Alex Thompson. I thought he had a very good game. Which is ironic because he's probably now not going to get selected for the senior team because Ian Nagel has arrived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it was great that he impressed against Uruguay. <laughs> maybe, maybe he didn't impress everyone else the way that he impressed me. <laughs> <laughs> no, he impressed me as well. I thought he was very good. Um, Marcus Ray, I thought was quite good too in the in the back row, the younger brother of Matty. Um, now mm. I, know, I know opportunities are probably going to be quite limited in that back row, but certainly I thought he put his hand up for selection. But as I said, I, I felt really bad for the backs in the game because it was a chance for everyone to impress and the weather just meant there was absolutely no chance of anyone outside that front eight who were going to make any sort of an impression. Well, the Uruguay and Wing made an impression. Mires, the guy that used to play for Coventry, he was class. Oh, I yeah. Sign him up. <laughs> Actually, the last time somebody was signed off the back of this type of fixture, didn't work out so well. So. <laughs> one, one, of the, one of the best parts for me was whenever Mares made a break into the 22, there were about three Ulster players went to tackle him, and all of them slid on the wet ground and just sort of went on a big slide past him. So it looked like he was leaving guys in his wake, when in actual fact they were all just falling over behind him. It's great crack. <laughs> Um, the last time Ulster played Scarlets, obviously it took uh, a very, 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 very late John Cooney penalty to get the win. Are you expecting similar drama this week, or no? Is that wishful thinking? No. <laughs> um, like this is a fixture where traditionally, in recent times, it's been won by the home side. Um, whether it's been played at Ravenhill or whether it's been played at Parky Scarlets, um, the home team tends to come out on top, um, apart from Scarlet's won here once, I think, um, in that time, and Ulster got one draw in Clonethley, but you're going back until December 2012, the last time that um, okay. Ulster won over there. Scarlet's have won 25, sorry, 25 unbeaten at home in the Pro 14. I know they lost to, um, to Racing at home to start the Champions Cup, but 25 unbeaten. Um, in the Pro 14 that's the third longest run in the history of the competition Leinster have two longer runs at the RDS but that's it um, so it's a very very tough place to go Ulster are missing half their team Scarlets are missing half their team um, Scarlets maybe have more um, it's a bit early in the week so we haven't got a heck of a lot of squad needs to go up Scarlets maybe have more um, senior players that are going to be available to them that aren't um, involved in the test series um, so I suppose if you were to look at it realistically with the exception of that monster game this is the league game so far that you would go into with the certainly the smallest amount of expectations 
you can make a very credible case for going into it the same way you went into Racing, where you just try and score four tries and hope you come away with a point from it. Yeah. That's your attitude to every away game. You always <laughs> suggest that that's what they should do. And Maybe. sometimes you're right. But... <laughs> I, I think I've only advocated it twice. It's, oh, a, no, well, it's, it's well, a favourite tactic of yours. But that, that's the thing. Like, you, you look High at some, scoring away defeats. You look, you look at some of these games and you think to yourself, are Ulster going to win these games? Realistically, you'd think no. Are, were they going to beat Munster away? Realistically, no. Were they going to beat Rassing away? Realistically, no. Are they going to win this one away? Realistically, no. So what's your best way of maximising your return <laughs> from this game? You go all out and you try and score tries. I just don't think that... Um, in this particular game, at this particular stage of the season, that you have the level of cohesion, probably where you can say, let's go ahead and score four tries, because you've got so many unfamiliar combinations. But that's been the case for Ulster all season. Well, you would have seen, like, McCluskey's been a constant, um, Cooney, by and large, has been a constant, Billy Byrne has been a constant, so they've tried to build that 9, 10, 12 as much as they can. They're not going to have two of those, so you get more. Um, new combinations there you've got Ludic hopefully coming back in for his first game um, of the season so it's going to be very very chopping, chopped and changed um, I, I might be wrong it would not be the first time I'm just saying that I personally don't expect them to get um, anything from here, it's not a fixture traditionally where they do and it's not fallen particularly kindly for them either well, if that hasn't enthused you for Friday evening's game, here's Dave Shannon. Shoot it, <laughs> Yeah, it's always a tough challenge going away to Scarlets against their class team. Obviously won, won the Pro 12 a couple of years ago and then put their best foot forward in Europe last year as well. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting month anyway. Yeah, well, obviously yeah, we're sitting second, but they're just the point behind us. So it is actually, especially this game this week in the Pro 14, it's a... So like it's a huge pivotal moment in the season. Like obviously both teams are probably gonna have a lot of their you know, big guys away in um uh, international duties and stuff. So it's gonna uh it's gonna be a big chance for younger guys to sort of step up and um, you know, play a big role in what is a very important game of the season for us. Just very quickly then, uh, Ireland play USA at the Aviva on Saturday at half six. What can we expect in terms of Ulster players in that one? Um, I'd say you're going to see six in the 23. I think you're going to see McCluskey, Herring, Cooney, Addison, Murphy, and Hendy. It's a big, you mentioned John Cooney. Um, I know not the scenario that you want anybody to get an opportunity, but it is an opportunity for him with Kieran Marmion's injury. Mm, it's, a, it's a big opportunity. and I was actually thinking about this as I was driving in today. Like, you never want to wish an injury on anyone, and that that is most definitely the case here. You know, we, we don't want to wish an injury on Kieran Marmion, but whenever you see someone go down with an injury like that, you've got to think to yourself, "This is my opportunity." Mm-hmm. You've got three months where Marmion isn't gonna play a single game of rugby, uh, provided he doesn't make an early return. So John Cooney's got to be thinking of this as. If I put in three months of really hard work, starting with a good game against USA, come back to Ulster and put in a string of great performances, you've got the potential to really say, well, look at me, I've been playing rugby and I've been playing good rugby. You know, I, I deserve to be in this team ahead of Kieran, who needs to be managed back into the squad. 
Um, so I, I think Cooney's really got to um, be saying to himself at this point, this is my chance to really impress Jochman. I think the problem is that he just hasn't really got the chance. You know, Will he get it, will he get it and will he start Saturday? I, he, I think he should start, but that's... To me, that's not really the chance that he was looking for to impress Joe Schmidt. Mm-hmm. And he, he, because he's a very positive person, probably will look at it as a... I've got three months now to knuckle down and really press my claim. But to me, that's what he has been doing, and he still hasn't been getting the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So it's a good... Obviously, it's a good November um, for Ireland. It just doesn't seem like it's been a good November for John Cooney because I would have expected him to get more of a chance mm-hmm. than he got. So to date, whatever it was, 15 minutes against Italy and Chicago with Conor Murray out. Conor Murray's going to be back bearing him. Um, in mind, he might play this week, but if not, mm-hmm. he's going to be back. So Marmion out, you've still got three, um, three scrum halves regardless, and then you expect Marmion to be back sort of just in time for the Six Nations that seems to be, you know, this is an injury that he's been carrying and it seems to be that the idea will be that um, if he has the surgery on it now yeah, he'll get back for the Six Nations uh, listener questions then <laughs> why did you go all it's French there? my shoes off, I'm very relaxed uh, listener yeah, can questions, we talk Matthew. about this actually let's just no, pause for a second why do you have your shoes off? Matthew Porter asks, what went wrong with the signing of Rodney Ayew, who obviously has announced that he is leaving Ulster to join Newcastle Falcons? Uh, Matthew Porter says, fitness, his application, talent coming through, or was it just wrong club, wrong time? I think the fact that, um, you know, people talk about how he was part of that Connacht um, league winning team. And he was, obviously, but he'd already been superseded by Finlay Bealham at that stage. Um, so you know he was trending in one direction I guess and came up here it hasn't worked his last action in an Ulster shirt was to get a red card um, the real Zinedine Zidane way to go out <laughs> or rather being in the World Cup final it was against Ospreys A <laughs> I mean at, at the end of the day he just wasn't good enough and I mean at one stage he was uh, whenever he was with Connacht whenever he did manage to get a, a few caps for Ireland, but he just came up and he wasn't the quality that Ulster needed. But but why? I mean, if he had that such a good season for Connacht, surely if he had reproduced that form, he would have been good. Well, his, his good season for Connacht wasn't the year they won the... His good season for Connacht was 2013-14. Yeah, you were relying on him picking up form that he hadn't shown for uh, two or three years at that point, and he, he just never did. Like, but by all accounts, he did apply himself and he did try and slim down a bit but I, I just don't think he was ever going to recapture that form and I think it was a case of Ulster signed him in the hope that he could and it turned out he couldn't Fair Tom Armstrong then with four players leaving Ulster for various reasons since the start of the season is this a sign of Bryn clearing house in order to save money for big signings for next season or is it all just a bit of a coincidence I don't think it's a coincidence Um. Well, sorry, that's not fair. Um, the injury and forced retirements coming so close together are probably a coincidence. The I was going to say, Johnny, Johnny was putting on his conspiracy hat there yes, for a second. Sorry. Injuries aside, but things like... Um, Who do you think killed JFK, Johnny? 
it's another podcast. <laughs> let's uh, let's stay on target. It's very close to dinner time at this stage. Um, if you're looking at it in terms of the general downsizing of the squad, allowing people to leave um, mid-season, then there has obviously been an effort to save money. Personally, I think it would probably be optimistic to think that it's being put towards some sort of war chest for summer signings rather than, Mm. um, you know, if I uh, get my calculator out here, um, let's say the average ticket price is about 30 quid. Let's say you're down, say, let's say 1,500 on the gate each game. That's 45 grand a game. <laughs> 10 um, home games a year. That's 450,000 pounds. 45 times 10 into your <laughs> <laughs> I was doing the whole thing with the calculator. I mean, I, I know none of us are great at maths, but... <laughs> Johnny, that's taking it to a little bit of a whole. I think if I had have asked either one of you right now, how much do we think Ulster are losing on the gate per per game and then multiply it out per season? I think for the sake of our listeners, it was a lot easier that I just (laughs) did it bam, 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 bam on a calculator than us trying to work it out. Fair. So what you're saying is they're not in a position to have many. What I'm saying is you're probably looking at making a marquee signings Mm -hmm. wage less per season solely on the back of the decrease in attendance that we've seen already. So you probably are, and then we're trying to do it anyway to uh, trim down the squad, but you're probably having to look at spending less on your wage bill. That's something that we've seen other teams in England do, spend maybe even a higher average per player, but spend it on less players. Mm -hmm. Like, you look at, Rodney IU, for example, there was an effort to made in preseason to see if he could switch over to the loose head side of the scrum. But instead, what we've seen is just um, Eric O'Sullivan and Andy Warwick playing every game. Kyle McCall comes back from injury, that maybe lessens the load. Alan O'Connor and Kieran Treadwell are guys who have also played in every game. So is it worth paying people who aren't going to play? The answer is obviously no. But that could be a way that you save money rather than squirrel money away to spend on Ebenezerbeth. Yeah. I'd say there's... You very casually name drop there right at the very end. I like that. It's just like thinking of world-class players who are available in positions that Ulster need. It wasn't <laughs> like, I think that they're going to sign Ebenezerbeth. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd, I concur with that. I'd, I'd say there probably wasn't much effort made to uh, keep any of them from retiring or keep Rodney staying to be honest one final listener question then which really just to me seems like uh, Sean Kasky is looking us to help out in his job which I think is the least we can do given that we ask people to help us with our job every week all the time so here we are Uh, we are here for you Sean (laughs) exactly Sean asks I often use the Jacob Stockdale late rugby development story to inspire some of my kids in my under-12 squad. Can you think of any other better examples? I mean, if they're breaking through late at under twelve level, <laughs> you know, what, what are they late breaking in for? <laughs> no, it's funny, because like, I remember the year that Wallace got to the Schools Cup final. It was not um, Jacob Stockdale's year. 
Um, it was after that, and like we were interviewing the captain, um, before and just like chatting about him and talking about rugby in the school and stuff. And he was like, "Yeah, you know, we got some really good players in the in the second fifteen. They're all uh, looking to be the um, next Jacob Stockdale." And it was only then that you sort of remembered that like Jacob Stockdale was like playing second fifteen in like fifth year, and it was only. Um, in his sort of later years in school that he became um, somebody that people were looking at, let alone somebody setting records in the Six Nations. And, um, you know. That's quite funny. My brother would have been in that second 15 that the Wallace captain was talking about then. There's still time. (laughs) Yeah, so so Tom, if you're listening, you can still be the next Jacob Stockdale. Um, No, in terms of players who broke through late, um, Mike Ross kind of applies in this situation because I mean he had already made it as a professional rugby Mike Ross player. 100% yeah. applies because he wasn't a professional until he was 26 like every professional game that Mike Ross played was older than Ty Furlong is now I'm not going to lie I didn't know he broke into like professional rugby that late I thought he just broke into international rugby quite late no because he was playing at yeah. Harlequins um, for a while four years then came back Got into the Ireland team just in time for the 2011 World Cup. Um, went to the 2015 World Cup, ended up winning 50 caps. But no, he wasn't actually a professional rugby player until he was 26. Um, so The more you learn. He's a good a example. example. time for you yet, Adam. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> I have to lose a bit of weight <laughs> first. That would, be the, um, that would be the big incentive. John Hayes would be another one that I would think of. Um Having come from a GEA background, I think he just ended up being um, introduced to rugby through friends at his local club, and then he went to. I think he went to New Zealand. Yes, he went to New Zealand for a stint, um, where they told him that he wasn't a second row; he was probably a prop. And there you have like, well, there's Ireland's what? That's fifteen odd years of Ireland tight heads. Neither of them have showed any signs of being a professional rugby player at the under-12s level that we're talking about. So so basically what I have to do is put my head down and start working to become a tight head prop. Yeah, you've, pretty much. You've still got time. Excellent. Time to play in the World Cup, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. My, mine's probably passed. Possibly. Yeah, I worked out that with like Rodney going, I think there only is like three players in their 30s in the Ulster squad at the minute. So like... I'd be like the fourth oldest player at this stage. <laughs> but see, the, this is the thing. You could be interviewing me someday as I'm about to go away to the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be... If anybody wants to... That would be a money, wild that, ride. That would I be am, an absolute... I am accepting world. bets on that if anybody wants to give me money. Um, anyway, what else do we have? Yes, before we move on to the clubs, just very quickly, a little pat on the back for... Us will be really you too, but I'm piggybacking on it. Ian Nagel. So you say his name, isn't it? Yep. Well done. You guys predicted that signing, didn't you? We did. Remind us all. Yes, yeah, so it. next time you want uh, speculative guesses as <laughs> to who else they're going to sign, you know who to come to. Johnny's already thrown exactly. out Eben Etzebeth on this <laughs> yeah. podcast, so there yeah. you go. Eben will be seeing you in Belfast this, <laughs> this time next year. So that, that's a big call we've made on uh, predicting, off the back of predicting the most predictable 
signing <laughs> yeah. Ulster have ever made. Like, we're not taking too much credit for this. We all knew it wasn't going to be anyone no, top take, line. Or take it take where you can get it. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It was going to be in the... Well, you also, also should take credit for, Jonathan, it is your book, which we have mentioned before, but we'll mention it again. <laughs> How, had the book yeah, since it, our last Is this podcast. the first time that we've talked about the book? Um, no, the, book the book was launched. It was good. It was good to um, meet a few, few podcast listeners. Um, it was good to meet a few podcast listeners' parents. I don't know whether like you guys sent them to the book launch or they just happened <laughs> to be at the book launch um, and but knew about the podcast. But our, our podcast must be like talked about over family dinners. Yeah. So I don't know whether like people who read books <laughs> don't listen to our podcast or people who listen to our podcast don't want to read books. But there was an there wasn't a heck of a lot of crossover. There was there was two or three, and it was good to talk to those guys of. Oh, I really like the podcast, but more of it was I'm buying your book and my son really likes your podcast. <laughs> so in light of that uh, feedback, we can announce that there will be an audio book. There won't. There absolutely <laughs> won't be an audio book. But you never know. So it'll put like... people to sleep. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. Whoa. Wow. Whoa. Here, you, you tore strips off Mister... me for missing the all-black scheme. <laughs> Mr. Never wrote a book over here in the corner. <laughs> Let's go to the clubs before we <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna be laughing too much now. Um, yeah, last week there was one game. It was in the women's All Ireland League. There was a big win away at Galwegians for Cook. They won 24-14 to lift them up to fourth in the league. And then looking ahead to this week, it's only Division One B in the All Ireland League who are in action this week. And there's a massive game at Gibson Park. It's first against second this Saturday as Malone take on Nice. There is an Ulster Derby at Ballymacarn Park as third place Banbridge travel to take on fifth place Balna Hinch, while fourth place City of Armagh welcomes sixth place Old Belvedere to the Palace Grounds. Those games will all kick off at half past two. What an absolutely thumping list of fixtures I know. for the All-Ireland League this it's week. We should have just done the All-Ireland League this week rather than We genuinely could have. This is a huge week. <laughs> but it's too late now. Podcast in the bag at this stage. <laughs> We're not going back. Uh, I take it you're predicting a Maroon victory. It'll be tough. Um, Nia's yeah, been in good form. Um, this is their biggest test of one B so far. Yeah, good form. That's well, 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 that's true. I like. I won't. As we've spoken about at length in recent weeks, I won't see an All Ireland League game mm-hmm. until um, the middle of December with various. Ulster and Ireland commitments so my finger's not on the pulse right now of what's actually going on that's fair that's fair well that's pretty much us for this week then so um, we will be back next week when we'll look back on the Scarlet scheme and look ahead to Ulster playing somebody else are we going back to week on week we're not going for that one every two week thing that we're going there no that was you're just, very much advocating this we are a weekly podcast I saw we, brought, I think, we are when I'm in the country I would say <laughs> don't know I thought, thought we brought good energy with our wee week I off did, I, didn't, I did enjoy this week I must say I'm just going to assume most people have stopped listening now so it's like we're having our debrief on our <laughs> <laughs> but I did enjoy it um, yeah maybe I'm just fresh from that what it is but no I think we'll keep it every week mm-hmm. unless Ulster want them to change their schedule they'll only play every other week that'd be great great for you you would only you'd be like a week on week off and work yeah. that'd be last I would come in like one day a week and just knock a few pieces out and go back so you do now because <laughs> <laughs> I have to do more work now oh per you from Adam McHenry yeah let's wrap this up <laughs> that was not Adam McHenry <laughs> cheers guys Jonathan Bradley thank you very much and me Gareth Anna thanks for listening